Welcome to the Helen Pedrosa podcast. I am your host, Helen Pedrosa. And in this podcast, we talk about how to get to our sweet spots by nurturing ourselves, our careers, and the communities that we are part of, the relationships that we are in to other people, to ideas, concepts, knowledge, and experiences that we are building in our lives. So I don't know what today's episode has in store for us, but let's figure out it together. Hello, everyone. Today, our guest is someone that I hold very dear to my heart. We met in 2018 at a Starting Block Institute. And ever since we've kept in touch because we have a lot of similar interests and values. And I think today you are going to witness something in first hand because we never actually talked about our backgrounds and introduced each other in that way. So I just wanted to make sure we were doing that on record because we were already talking about futurism and scenarios and stuff, but Angela, so I'm very happy to introduce you to Angela. She's one of the people that I've been, you know, keeping in touch consistently throughout um, since the pandemic started. And I feel like, you know, when one of my teachers once said that if you have the same cause as me, then you are already my, my teammate, my colleague, and we are already like sharing a cause and working together. And I feel like, I admire her for many reasons, and I think now you are going to see why and understand better why that is. So, Angela, can you please just introduce yourself for, for our listeners? Sure, sure. And, and thank you so much for having me. Um, thank you for, for inviting me to do this. I think it's really important. Um, I think that your role um, as a facilitator is the highest role that one can play um, because you bring voices, um, people together. And that is so critical in this day and age. Um, the role of the facilitator uh, is heightened and I thank you for that. Um, yeah, so I'm Angela Pashayan. Uh, my background is, is varied. Um, I have a PhD from Harvard University in international relations and comparative politics. Uh, my expertise is in poverty reduction in informal settlements. So I love the places that people don't love. I love the slums and uh, I love figuring out ways to um, help people in slums live sustainable lives and improve their livelihoods. Um, and my background is, is I was born and raised in Compton, California. And for many people who are listening to this, you know, Compton, California, they may think that it's like Beverly Hills because they don't know the difference. Um, but Compton, California would be, you know, equivalent to the favelas or the, the slums in um, Nairobi or in Africa. Obviously not as bad, right? Because we know there's a difference uh, between the modernization in America and in other countries. Um, however, that would be the equivalent. And uh, growing up in that uh, background, you know, it, it taught me a lot of things. Um, and what I learned you know, helping me to sort of see things in, in a different light and to be able to, I guess, quote unquote, escape poverty. Uh, now I'm doing the same by trying to teach those same lessons to others. 
Yes. And I remember the first time we talked, that was something I didn't even know that until now, guys. So just we're clear. This is the first time that I'm actually hearing like for Angela's background. And I remember the first time we talked, you started telling me about some of your projects and things that you were doing and you were interested in. And I remember we were talking about Kenya, right? And you were doing something yes. in Kenya. And then I have some friends who were doing things there too. So I, I was like, oh yeah, maybe you guys should meet and get to know each other. That's what I do. I, I love doing that, right? And then um, I know that from that conversation, I already got the sense, like you can get a lot from, you know, how a person talks about their passion. And I remember mm -hmm. I could, feel like I could feel it. I think now I'm understanding better where that comes from. But yeah, it, it's so interesting now to see, you know, understand a little deeper where your passions come from. So I wanted you to talk more about your passions and how they've developed. You know, it's such a big journey that you've been through. Howard University is such an amazing place, you know, in the US. And I think to me, it's like, worldwide is one of my top universities like when it comes to my mind so i just wanted you to like talk a little bit about more like your passions how did you go to harvard like you know a little bit more about your story and your passions yeah um you know one thing that i've learned is that all of our journeys are unique and so for listeners um, who are out there you know um, i know that sometimes listeners are looking for you know is that path that she's talking about good for me or you know where where is my path where am i going because we're all looking for ways to to reach our ultimate goal and i want to say that all of us are are different and all of our paths are different and it's not so much of a you can't do what i did kind of thing it's more of a if things aren't going how you want them to or how you expect them to, just know that you have a unique path and how it's going for you is how it's supposed to be going for you. And you take the steps to make the changes and you'll find that ways open up when you're supposed to go that way and they close when you're not supposed to go that way. And you'll find that the more people you listen to as far as how they became, you know, president or vice president or, or this or that, or how they got this great job. It's really their path. And, you know, for you, you listen, you take in everything that you can, you do the best you can do, but know that your path will be different. My path started in a home in Compton, California um, with a very strong-minded um, father and mother. Uh, my dad uh, was a minister. And so by nature of being a minister, that means he's a leader. He was very influential in our city. Um, the mayor, town council, everyone in the city listened to my daddy at the largest church in Compton, the largest following. And when you have a large following, you know, it's because you're saying something that is speaking to the hearts and minds of people. Funny as I say that, I think about Trump, unfortunately. Um, but the things he is saying are speaking to the minds and hearts of, of certain people. So, you know, I don't condone anything that he's doing, but I have to admit that the people who are listening to him have been left behind in some kind of way. Um, and like most people who do awful things, they've been hurt or something has gone wrong in their 
uh, youth or maybe in their adulthood, something, something they've been disenfranchised in some kind of way. So my, my growing up in Compton with my dad as a leader um, taught me how to speak to people, taught me how to lead simply by watching him. My mom was a quiet mom. She basically did, you know, kind of quote unquote, what she was told in a way. Um, however, at a certain point, she said, I want to start a business. And that was pretty, a, a pretty bold step from someone being very quiet to suddenly I want to start a business. The business that she started was taking care of children uh, and taking care of children from the age of, of two months to like five years old, you know, so daycare. So I learned from watching her, the compassion that she had for women, the compassion that she had for women who couldn't even pay for the childcare. And we still gave good care to those kids. So I'm growing up in this environment, don't even know what I'm doing. I just, you know, I'm just Angela in this family watching these things. And these things are, are, are influential. They're my mother and father. So, I mean, to make a, a long story a little bit shorter, um, I thought that I, I knew I wanted to help people I thought that the route would be a degree in psychology. Um, I studied hard in Compton, in school. I got into UCLA and that was from studying hard. So you gotta, gotta put in the work. And um, at UCLA, I got a degree in psychology and like most people undergraduate degree, after you get the degree, you're like, I don't wanna do that. <laughs> so but here I am with this degree and I don't wanna listen to problems every day. And so, you know, it took a while for me to figure out, I want to solve the problems. I don't, I don't want to listen to them. Yeah, I want to get on the ground and solve the problem. And if I want to solve the problem, then that means I've got to be with people and I've got to be among people and I have to understand exactly what's going on. So I, I soon started a, a, a nonprofit and the nonprofit was basically to help um, poor people around the world. Uh, I didn't have a particular country that I wanted to go to. It was just like wherever there was work to be done, I wanted to do it. And that nonprofit did work in uh, India and uh, Peru and Australia and Nepal and uh, Indonesia. And I'm probably forgetting some countries, but you know, there were a string of countries that you know, I went to and I would always call for volunteers to, to come with me. And part of the deal was that I would give those volunteers a, a great tour of wherever we were, but they would have to in turn give me a couple of days of hard labor or work in a community that needed, you know, needed something. So that's really um, how I got started. And I, I know that sometimes listeners are like, well, how did you, how did you just do that? How did you just start a nonprofit? Ladies and gentlemen, that's really what you do. You literally just do it. You know, like the Nike, Nike slogan, there is no, well, first you do step one and then you do step two. No, you just do it. You know, there's that you just find out how do I start a nonprofit? You Google it, you go to the city council, you ask someone, whatever it is, you just literally have to do it. And so that's what I did. And, you know, people are like, well, how are you going to just jump over to India? It's called save money and buy a plane ticket. You know, there's no, there's no guidebook for this. You, you have to just do this stuff. Um, and yes, you do your research, you know, you try to prepare, you, you look up where you're going, you find out about health needs, you know, do you need to take medicine before you go, you find out all that stuff. And then you just save money and go. 
And for me, um, the desire to get to worldwide locations was so strong that if I had to eat beans, you know, every night for a week to save money, hey, that's what I have to do. Beans are better than nothing. So let's get down with it so that I can get over to a different country to do my work. And that's the passion that you felt yes. when we met, right? Absolutely. So to end this, um, after doing the international work for you know years, I decided that I wanted to um, really get to the highest level possible to make effective change in the lives of the poor around the world. And the highest level basically means the seat of power and money. And the seat and power of money is right here in Washington, DC. So I needed to get somehow into government or the State Department or you know, uh, foreign aid, World Bank, USAID. I needed to be able to uh, work in those companies or be able to consult or speak to really get some change. Um, and so here I am in Washington, DC. I finished my master's degree in 2014, finished the PhD just this year. Um, I have internships, I've had internships for the past couple of years with USAID and I have made some change, which is really great, uh, particularly doing COVID. And, um, you know, still pushing forward from this point. And Africa became the focus um, during all of my different tours and, you know, going around the world to help these people and those people in this country and that country. Once I went to Africa and saw the po poverty there, I just said, that's it. You know, I mean, yes, poverty is bad everywhere, but, you know, most likely because Africa is my, you know, my heritage going all the way back. When I saw people there, I said, okay, this is Compton, you know, 20 times worse. And, you know, these people look like me, they look exactly like me. And I, it's hard for me to turn away from that. It's really, really hard for me to turn away. I gotta make at least some of you guys, I gotta make some of you smile. You know, I gotta get some of you guys some food. So that became the focus. So since 2012, um, the focus has been on uh, Nairobi, particularly in the slums. And uh, here we are. I totally hear you on the relatability that you feel. Um, I feel like that when I think about Brazil. Um, I mean, we had this conversation before, but 1% of the Brazilians speak English. So even having this conversation to me, like being able to communicate with any individual from another country, just because I speak English, feels like an honor and a gift. And of course, there's the hard work of like studying, but honestly, getting to hear just everything that you just said feels like a gift to me. And I appreciate all of your work and you sharing it from such an honest and authentic and truthful perspective, um, because I feel like there is a lot of stereotypes around, you know, having a PhD or having a nonprofit or being an entrepreneur or like all these things, right? They mm -hmm. feel very abstract and like it's sometimes it's so hard to put your hand around it and relate, right? And mm -hmm. I really appreciate your work because, you know, role models are important for us to be able to just see that we can, as you were saying in the beginning, we can do it. You know, yes, we, we have can. we have to do the work, but still, if we don't have that story to relate to, 
you know, and I feel like that's what I felt when we first talked. It's like you have the same motivations and dreams and passions. And like there's something that we shared that is so deep that mm -hmm. I feel like we just connect right there and then. And now listening to your story, um, you know, I feel like all the pieces are coming together. And I think for, you know, uh, all of our listeners who haven't had the chance to meet you in person like I did, um, they must be wondering, um, okay, so you started in psychology, you wanted to do changes, and now you're working with international work and focusing on Africa. Um, how is that decision-making process, you know, like to just shift? Because sometimes I feel like you may feel like, oh my God, I'm throwing something away and starting from scratch, but you kind of never are, right? How was that process for you? Right, right. And so it is important to, to understand that, you know, that's sort of where the futurists um, conversation comes in where, um, you know, I typically, I'm a critical thinker. So when it comes to doing something, I'll do it and I learn from it. And then after I've done it a few times, such as going to, you know, Peru or, or going to India or Nepal, then I come back and I always think, what did I accomplish? How, how did I do? What could I have done better? You know, I always think about that. So it's important when you're doing things to, you can even put it a, a timer or something or, or set a date in your phone that says, you know, critical thinking today, you know, and, and put it in there to, to repeat once a month or, or whatever it is, where you sit down and figure out what have I done? And I think that that is probably the difference between people who are able to continue to go higher and higher and those who do not. Because if you can't analyze yourself and the work that you've done, you won't know whether or not you should shift gears or not. And so for me, after 10 years of doing work on the ground to help you know, reduce poverty around the world, I said, well, you've done a good job. Here's the people you've actually helped. Here's how it has affected them. Here's how it has impacted other lives, you know, because now they are role models for other people. That's nice. But what would you really like to see? And then I thought, well, let me think, what would I really like to see? And I thought, well, here's, here's the vision in my mind. And that would take a lot of money and who has that money, right? So you have to really think all the way. And I thought, well, you know, there's some rich people in the world, you know, people in finance, Jeffrey Sachs, and, you know, some corporations and Gates Foundation. And so I did my homework and Oprah, of course, you know, um, I think I've written seven letters to Oprah, okay? <laughs> At least seven, right? And oddly enough, Oprah has a second home that she adores. It's yes. in the town that I lived in, for God's sake. It's in Telluride. And let me tell you, Telluride has a population of 2,500 people, of oh, which wow. like two of them are Black, me and Oprah. Oh my God. So you would think that in that town, with me writing letters, that she would get the dang on letters and say, oh, this girl is doing something. You know, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that that was my first level of, of critical thinking. Let me reach people with money. It yeah. didn't work. It didn't work. 
you know, she never got the letters or if she got them, you know, maybe her assistant got them and threw them away. I don't know, but they never reached her. They never reached other rich people. They never reached big corporations. I wrote letters to my God, to Kanye West. I wrote letters to anybody that had money saying, come on, I'm doing good stuff. I don't want all your money. I just want like one tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of it to help, you know, to help people. I didn't reach anybody, but I did the exercise because in the critical thinking, it said, go for something higher. Absolutely. And from there, the, the next step, you know, where someone would say, well, what do you do? Well, you have to shift gears. You have to shift gears. If you're trying to reach that goal, you have to shift gears. And so it comes back to the analysis of, you know, where else can I go? And that's where I thought, okay, Washington, DC, you know, if I can get into an organization, I can make effective change with their budget. Yes. And that, that's where it is. That's where I am. And it's so interesting because I think there is an assumption behind entrepreneurship that like when you start, then you're just going to go and do all the things. And like, I feel like there is this myth of like entrepreneurs can do everything they want. And, you know, like some there is some kind of like stereotype around this. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so beautiful that you didn't get yourself in a box just because you have had your NGO and you have been an entrepreneur like no, that's fine. Like, let me see what is there and work with what is already around me. And I think whenever you're a social entrepreneur, not just an entrepreneur, you know, mm -hmm. you need to think about the systematics around it. You need to think about the systems you're in and really consider how they work. Where do I fit in? How can I better work with the system to produce the change that I want? And I see that so clearly in your narrative and in your story, because you know, you didn't let the label of entrepreneurship or academic PhD, you know, researcher, nothing is just like, if you have that passion, you will work. And I think people use the term hacking the system for this, but I think it's more just alignment. You know, if you're aligned with it, you will find your way around it. Right. And something else that we were talking about before we started recording was like, it's not about the just um, proposing the change. It's really about observing what works. And I think that's where like you as, you know, with all your experience around the world, that makes so much sense because I think one of the big myths about social entrepreneurship is, oh, I'm just gonna replicate this model everywhere. And that doesn't work, you know, mm -hmm. but because you have seen so many different cultures and things working in different settings, you really get that critical mindset of what are the criterias and the premises to make it work instead of replicating the model just because of it. So for you to develop that, that critical thinking mindset sense that you were talking so much about, like, um, what do you recommend for people that are looking to develop that too? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, like take, for example, a plate of food. You know, if you're only eating, you know, the meat and the potatoes, yeah, it tastes great. And you can live a good life eating the meat and potatoes. They taste just fine. Um, but then that's all you know is meat and potatoes. You know, you don't know anything else. You just know that. And so, you know, for your diet, you know, when you need to change something, you don't know where to go. So I think that actually having 
different experiences. Uh, you know, let's say that you start off as, you know, you want to be an entrepreneur and, and you have the money or whatever, and you, you start a company or something. I think you need to do as many different things within your company's mission as possible. Whatever your mission says, you know, we want to da 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 you need to get your hands all over that mission. You need to go out and do those things. Just don't say them. You need to go out and do them. And so even if your mission is something really, really grand, find a way to do it on a tiny scale. And I mean, for those who are entrepreneurs and, and have nothing, if you have to do something, you know, on a tiny scale to your sister or your brother, do it so that you know what it feels like or your neighbor or whatever it is, you need to have the experiences. And so my experiences growing up, I was a quiet girl. I was, you know, a listener and a watcher. And I watched my parents and I watched my siblings and I watched people in my community. When I got older, it morphed into wanting to help those people. I, I didn't know that, you know, in hindsight, I can see that. But at the time, I just followed, you know, my feeling of this is what is interesting me. And so a lot of times we turn away from what interests us because mostly because it doesn't make money. And we say, oh my God, I love doing this, but I can't make any money doing it. You need to find a way to follow what you love. If it means you have to do night work somewhere else or cleaning up or selling clothes or whatever, do that night work, but don't let go. Don't ever let go of doing that thing that fulfills you the most, because you know what? That's why you're on the planet. You're on the planet to do that thing. And so you have to give time to yourself and to the conditions around you to open up and foster what you really want to do. And it does take time. Some of us are just lucky and you know, have rich parents or whatever, um, and we get it from the beginning. But a lot of us don't. But that's really the, the most important thing I can say is don't ever let go of what feels good and what feels right to you. Just find a way to support yourself, but always keep your finger on, on what feels good. And don't be afraid to try something other than meat and potatoes. Try the vegetables, try, you know, dried fruits, try whatever because all it does is add, it adds value to whatever you're doing, whether you are a secretary, whether you are a street uh, cleaner, cleaning the streets, try different things because it only adds to, to the value of, of who you are and where you're going in your life. To me, that resonates on such a deep level because that's exactly why I started mentoring. To me, um, building up the diagrams was my way as a designer too, right? Because my background comes from design. So it was my way of designing something, right? That could support people in giving themselves the space to connect to what they feel it's the most truthful and honest and passionate and, you know, whatever that is for them to really sit with it and have a moment. And a lot of times what I notice is that so many people have never given themselves that chance. Most of the questions I do, like in the first mentoring session, 
no one ever asked them, you know, no one ever asked them, what do you want? What is it that you want? Not like your parents or your boss or your teacher from like whatever, you know, whatever the person, but like, what do you, you, like you just for yourself, regardless of everything else, like, what do you want? And to me, that resonates on such a deep level because um, I grew up loving philosophy. So whenever you were saying, like, I was thinking to myself, that to me is philosophy. Like whenever I read or listen to, you know, a philosopher's quote or something like that, to me, that is philosophy. And I love that you're talking about like psychology and international relations because, you know, and all your work in general, because I feel like I resonate with it so much. I came from design and went to strategic design and then went to social entrepreneurship. And now I'm working with organizational culture and very human one-on-one basis levels of like teaching and training and just mentoring. Right. And right now I'm in a space where I'm studying a lot of psychology because I want to understand what I designed, like what are the impacts of what I designed within a human, you know, as an individual level, like how do you process that? And it's so interesting because, you know, I, I bet that when you were traveling, like all of our backgrounds, you know, they help us somehow, right? So right. I feel like it's interesting to me because I feel like in a way we did similar things in a different order, sort of. You know what I'm yeah. saying? <laughs> and that's also something that makes me feel so like connected and resonating with what you're saying because I, I literally see in my head like the importance of every little detail of the things that you're saying, right? Um, so something else that I'm wondering now is um, we were talking about futurism and trying not crystal ball predict things, right? But the importance of learning how to apply, maybe, I don't know, like that's my mm -hmm. resignification of, of what we were talking about before we started recording, like the importance of resignifying things in a way that's applicable. How do right. you see that? Like, what is your perspective around, you know, different scenarios and understanding how things work in an applicable way to whatever we see in life? Yeah, it's very important, um, you know, to be practical. Um, and, you know, it's an approach that I take in a lot of things. As a matter of fact, you know, I can think of, of, um, you know, yoga and meditation. And, you know, one of my big things, you know, when I was doing a lot of yoga and a lot of meditation was to teach it in a practical way, because if you can't practically apply it and use it, you know, then it's like, well, what is it for? You know, <clears throat> there are things that are happening right now at, USAID at, at my um, internship. And, you know, I, I am tasked at trying to implement new um, protocol in a practical way. And so I'm tasked, you know, under the direction of, of the deputy chief to um, put together ways to teach people how to practically apply what USAID is, is looking for them to do. The practical application um, is, is, a, is a leap that, that it takes people a while to figure out how do, how do you actually do this? How do you actually you know, take these steps forward? For me, a lot of it is natural. The futurist thinking is basically a in your head type of, of thoughts of, you know, if we do this, you know, if this, then what? You know, if that, then what? And really thinking down the line of what could happen so that when you see those scenarios, you know, mm, I don't think we want this one. 
We want that scenario to happen. So maybe we should gear ourselves to do this in order to get that outcome. And for a lot of people, it's taxing. You know, it's taxing trying to take those steps. And I have to admit, some people are good at it. Some people are not good at it. And, and that's fine. You know, everybody's different. But at some point, in order to succeed, you have to take time to think of the next step. Because if you get to that next step and you are not prepared, you will fail. Your program will, will fail. And so that I think is also a difference between people succeeding and not succeeding is, you know, are you prepared for the what ifs? Imagine, for example, me taking a group of 12 people to India and I have not prepared for, you know, eating food and getting diarrhea and dying. I have to prepare for that. I can't just, you know, lead people blindly like that. I have to prepare for certain outcomes. I have to prepare for, you know, what if we need to evacuate, you know, and other things. What do I do if a child that we are caring for as a group dies? How do I help the group to come to grips with that, you know? Um, so there's a lot of things that we have to, to prepare for and, and to be futurists. So all of us need to be futurists in, in some kind of way, just to take care of, of our goals and to actually reach our goals. Yes, absolutely. And to me, that comes back to something that I think we both saw at starting block, right? That is own your impact, right? Yes. I think that really comes back to that. In my, and like the other day I was um, talking to a mentee and he was like, Helen, you talk about intention so much, but what about the results? And I was like, then you own your impact. But if you don't know your intention, how are you going to own an impact that you didn't know that you were intending to have? Um, exactly. To me, it, it really brings back home that. And as you were saying, um, I don't know if you know this, but all the things that you were saying are actually like design tools. And I'm just really? going to pin them out. Yes, exactly. I'm like, you oh. are a strategic designer. I don't know who didn't give you that degree because there's something wrong here. Like you, yeah, you need that degree. Right? I mean, what is happening? Um, basically, like what ifs are literally like tools that we use in workshops. All that you're saying wow. about like building the thinking process. Right. We call it building blocks. The way we do that in workshops is like, so for example, if you're my client and we need to like solve the problem of hunger, yeah. right? What we do is like, okay, what is the ecosystem that we're talking about? Like who are the stakeholders? What is happening? Then we understand it. Then we talk about what if this possibility was possible? Like what if we used this stakeholders capacity towards something else? What right. if we rearranged, like what if? And literally like there are people, there's a bunch of like design thinking decks you know, that people mm -hmm. sell, like, yeah. I, like all these big companies, right? For clients, and they literally make into like a deck card with like, what if, and yes, and, and like all these phrases that you were saying, I don't know if you remember <laughs> from the workshop at starting block, but literally they tell you at starting block, like, you cannot say, but you can only say yes. And so and I it's, love it. Right. And it's so natural. And to me, that's so important because it's language and language means a lot. We think it that it's just like, oh yeah, whatever. I was just recording a podcast the other way, the other day with a mentee, but it was on Portuguese. So I want to make sure I, I bring it back here. Mm -hmm. Knowing a language doesn't mean you know how to communicate. 
let alone build a relationship. Right. So everything that you're saying brings a lot of things back home to me because I, I resonate, I identify. It's like, yes, we do the same thing. And maybe it's like for you is more subconscious. And then it comes back to me, like when you are a leader of whatever sort, you know, you can be a mother, you can be a father, you can be a, a team leader in your business, you can right. run an NGO or like, you know, whatever it is that you're, others people's lives and experiences are in your hands and you're responsible for that. I think that teaches you a lot. And I want to call it like the, 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 you know, the school of life of sorts, you know, that it will- is, it is. And, you know, I have to say that um, that is an important um, thing, you know, the school of life, um, because we need to know things from school of life. School of life is what prepares us for uh, different circumstances and from, you know, different outcomes and, and different impacts that we make. And I think that for people who don't really know the school of life, meaning the school of hard knocks, that part of life, those people yes. that don't understand that, um, you know, they, you know, I won't say that they should not be uh, leading certain things, but I, I'm kind of saying they should not be leading certain things because they don't know. <clears throat> and when you don't know, it really makes it difficult to effectively help someone unless you have a team around you of, you know, someone that's been in this circumstance and this circumstance, um, it's hard for that person to relate. And so, you know, for me, when I look at, you know, for, for, for um, international affairs and, and international development, when I look at people who work in, in, you know, for companies like USAID or World Bank, and they're working in Africa, and, you know, I don't see a black person at the head of any of these, you know, um, sectors that are in charge of, of, you know, resilience or food security you know, or, or poverty reduction. I'm like, you, you guys, you don't know poverty. You have, you have no idea. You see it, you know it's horrible, but you can't really identify with it. You don't have, you're not, you're not a, a um, you know, a heartfelt stakeholder in it. You understand it and, and you could be the best of all people in the world, but I'm sorry, you don't know it the way, you know, another black person would know it coming into Africa and to see thousands of workers hired in, you know, um, organizations that are meant to help people who are suffering and to have, you know, not enough people of, of various colors, you know, whether we're talking about India or Indonesia or, you know, South America. And, I, you know, it, it amazes me they are getting better at that, you know, they are getting better, but uh, there is still a ways to go. And I offer my expertise, my knowledge, my personal experience, I offer that to those organizations in whatever capacity they would need someone like me in. That's what I'm here for. Um, but I, I do wanna say one more thing on, on that note um, that the things you're speaking about, the design thinking, and the things that I'm talking about, which are similar, the, the critical thinking, um, I've learned a lot of that from life, but I have to give it up to um, Paulo Freire, who was Brazilian, 
who is the man who figured out there is a disconnect between the you know top echelon of the world and the rest of us. And you know, Paulo was born at a time where he was born middle class in Brazil and he had everything he needed. But then the depression happened in 29 and his family had to give up everything and they moved to the favelas. So he lived in both, he lived middle class and then he lived you know, his teen years in the favelas. And because he had those different perspectives, he said, something's missing here. You know, um, you know, these people don't know that and these people don't know that. And I'm gonna find a way to help them critically think so that they can understand each other. And that is the basis of my entire PhD dissertation. It's all on Paolo Freire. Yes. That's amazing. So, yes. And so, you know, I really, you know, I, I, I love his work and I see part of myself in Paolo in his desire to help people to think the way you're talking about the design thinking, the way I'm talking about the critical analysis of yourself, the words you were just saying to understand the stakeholders who are involved, um, you know, in, in, in changing a situation. And so I, I just have to, to let people know that Paulo, Paulo Freire, he's, he's, he's my guy. Yes. And he's such a big name. And I think honestly, maybe because he's Brazilian, mm -hmm. there is so it, he's underestimated in of our course. education. And it's so interesting to me because if you want to know like the Brazilian jams, I tell people like you need to ask an outsider. We call them gringo, right? If you're from outside Brazil, call, ask a gringo who they know that's Brazilian. Right. Because of course, some people will just know like the football players and that's fine. You know, I think there is something there. It's mm -hmm. not exactly something I adore. Like I don't like football, but you yeah. know, I feel like there's a lot of kids around the world that see themselves as like someone who's coming from an underdeveloped country and then like playing for like a big league somewhere, you know, and I think there is value there. Um, but there are so many other Brazilians like that we don't even get to know in school because you know it, it and their value is it's just like you can even put a limit around it to like you know describe it because there is so much there and i feel like it's evolving it's always evolving like paulo Freire, for example for me i totally resonate with what you're saying and and because um i don't come from a wealthy family so i've but i went to private schools my entire life yeah. So I've lived both of those, you know, in my life. So yeah. I can totally identify with what you're saying. And then right. I see the disconnection and even being like speaking another language too, right? It puts yeah. your mind in a different setting. You see the yeah. world differently. You make different connections. You see, just absorb them in a whole new level. And for me, Paulo's Freire's work, like his life was exactly what you're saying is just like, okay, there is the application to language, there is the application to like there's different applications, but the premise here is there has to be a middle ground where we can all meet right. and learn. And right. that's why he's such a big person in education, right? His work right. is is about development, I think, not even just education, yes. but development as human beings, exactly. as groups, right? Right, right. 
Right, very much so. And, you know, it's really great to, to you know, hear your thoughts on that um, because my research is exactly that. My research is, you know, talking to development professionals who are in uh, Nairobi, Kenya to find out from them, you know, well, what do you think really works, you know, to reduce poverty, extreme poverty? And then doing the same thing with focus groups um, of residents who live in the slums and asking them so that we can see where, where that gap is. And like you say, find a middle ground. And part of finding the middle ground is helping the slum dwellers to understand the stakeholders around them, to understand how you know, poverty is not their fault, how you know, uh, it relates to, to uh, a, a greater part of the population and, and you know, to help them understand the ramifications of it so that we can find a middle ground and actually try and solve some of these issues. Um, you know, and something else that you mentioned about, I've, I've heard you say, listening to stories and listening to my story and, and your story. There's another author who I think is really important. His name is Eric Selbin. Eric Selbin has a book and it's all about stories and the power of stories. And Eric Selbin says that we lift each other up on a human level from our stories. So when there is a story about Angela from Compton, you know, who's done this or that, that story carries weight in lifting up other people because you relate to the stories. And I think that for all of us who, um, you know, didn't grow up, you know, with $50 million in the bank, we need our stories. And I think that it's really time that, you know, if there's a listener out there, you know, who is a great writer, please pick up the banner and start to write more stories. It can be, you know, chapter one, the story of Helen, you know, chapter two, the story of Angela, chapter three, your own story, chapter four, give us some stories because we need them. We really need them. The days of old where we had people like Che Guevara and, you know, Martin Luther King and, you know, we need more stories is, is what I'm coming to. Yes, and I think um, throughout the years we, I've seen in the US and I feel like in Brazil we have like smaller versions of this. CAD is still like, it's something constant and reliable in Brazil, which I think it's precious, you know, because for a really long time before TEDx, we had only TED and that was totally inaccessible for Brazilians. But now we have TEDx and yes. I'm not just saying that because I gave, I gave one, but because even before that, learning like represent, representation is important, right? So getting to see someone that looks like you telling their story means so much. And it, it's, I love the way you're speaking about stories because it has, there's something really magical and precious about listening about someone's stories from them, right. not from someone else, yeah. because you can actually see things through their eyes. And that's to me like something you cannot, you cannot put a price or limit in because it's so, it's beyond words, you know, it's really where the magic is for me. And I think in the US, we also have the moth sessions where people mm -hmm. tell their stories too. Right. And I think that in Brazil, we have like smaller versions of things happening yeah. in different places. Um, 
I still think that it, it's really precious to have something like a TEDx or like, you know, that will allow you to come up and tell your story, like the moth and stuff like that, because listening, right? And I think your research is reminding me of Brene Brown's research. There is mm -hmm. so much, um, and I love it because there's so much research that is based on like, you know, evidence and science and yes. you know what not and i think it's beautiful and that's exactly what i want with my masters too is just bring back just like let's stop looking at numbers for a bit and start listening right. a little more so right. um how for you as a, a student and an academic was like what was academia's response to you proposing a research like yours like was it okay, accepted, struggled? How was that for you? Well, let me tell you, um, everything I do is, um, my, the response I get is, how are you going to do that? Uh, or if I say, you know, oh, I'm, I'm gonna interview, you know, how many people are you gonna interview? And I'll say, oh, I'm gonna do focus groups with 500 people. <gasps> oh, you could never do that. Uh, well, how many days do you think it's gonna take you to do I can do that in two days. <gasps> oh, that's gonna take two years everything, everything that I propose to do. And I, I, I'm not proposing it because I'm just guessing I can do it. I am proposing it because I know I can do it. I have been on the ground in the slums for 10 years. I know how it works. I, I know these things. I would never just, you know, pick something as important as research, you know, and you've got to jump through all these hoops to, to, you know, get the research done. I would never pick something that I knew I couldn't do. I would fail. So basically, you know, my experience in academia, you know, when I ask questions in class or, you know, when I propose this or that, I'm outrageous. You know, it's, it's, it's always, I'm outrageous. Um, a lot of times, I will not ask a question or, or, or not chime in because I already know, oh, they're not ready for it. You know, they're not, they're not ready to, to I'm, I'm not even going to do it, you know. Um, so it's been, it's been like that. Um, there have also been plenty of times where I will give a, 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 a tidbit of my thoughts and it's wonderful. It turns into a great discussion you know, a wonderful learning opportunity. Um, and I'm learning things as well, you know? So it's not like I know everything. I'm learning things as well. But when it comes to um, making that measurable difference, which means research, where things are, are shown with, with data, um, uh, typically they'd like to push me back saying, you know, you can't do it, it it's impossible. Um, so, you know, I have to work with it. It's a system. Uh, I work with it and, you know, ultimately I, I get done what I know I can get done, but I do have to work within the system. And it's something that all of us, you know, we, we all have to work with within the system that we, that we have. Yes, absolutely. And I identify again with everything you're saying. I feel like all, you know, graduation, post-grad, now the master's, I don't know yet because I didn't start, but like, Every single experience I had in academia was exactly the same. Like, that's not possible, basically. Like, I haven't seen that before, therefore it's not possible. And 
I was actually just speaking to Rodney, another fellow. Uh, okay. Yeah. And yesterday, and I was telling him, like, isn't it incredible? We were talking about business, right? Like how sometimes you're proposing like a consulting solution or a training solution. And people are like, that's not going to work with my team because you don't know my team. And I'm like, yes, but that's exactly the point. Like, I am not from your team. Therefore, I can do something different. Um, So, you know, and I feel the same thing in academia. And I'm not saying that all like, you know, the market that we're in is like that. I also think that because I'm a designer, I have some level of flexibility in what I propose as like a a research topic. And to me, um, something that I learned in design that helped me a lot with all these struggles were, there is a name for this thinking process we have, which is abductive thinking. And right. right? And for me, like, most of the scientific evidence based science, more like like data analysis side mm-hmm. of academia, I'm like, yes, you're not doing objective thinking, you're doing something else, right? You know, you're doing inductive thinking, not even deductive thinking, but like you're doing inductive thinking because you're getting data and you're in, like literally extracting information out of it. So I'm doing something else. I'm trying exactly. to codify things and transforming tested knowledge into a code that you can actually learn how to read. So, and, and that requires an entirely different set of skills and constructing things, right? And I think it's hard sometimes for people who don't know how it works because they think you're just guessing, right? They think it's just like, oh yeah, it's because you think that that's how it is. And it's not, you know? It's a different process. I it think. is. You, you are the you are the Paulo Freire of design thinking. That is basically <laughs> it. I mean, you can imagine people thought he was nuts. They're like, well, yes. what, what, "What are you talking about, Paulo? This is crazy." I mean, they thought he was so nuts that they banished him from Brazil for God's sake. You know. So you know, you're right. It's a different type of thinking, and um, I believe that you know, 2021, the years going forward, I think that it is the people who think differently, who will succeed and make effective change. Um, and you know, change looks like a lot of different things in a lot of different places. Change doesn't always mean you know, big, big structural changes. It can be small changes. Um, but if you think about it, everything you know, in the world is changing. It's just a matter of how quickly You know, I mean, basically your hair follicles from last night to this morning have changed. You know, everything is changing. But when it comes to systems, it just takes a a little bit longer um, for things to, you know, to actually change. But um, yeah. Yeah, and I feel like once we understand once we can see the change happening, because that's something I think we underestimate a lot, but when you're literally trained in your life, and I love when you said it's the school of life, because I literally tell my mentees, like, it's a survival mode thing. Like, you need to learn how to read the situation. You need to learn how to read, like, you know, and I think minorities in general, know that language very well right which you know i 
I don't want to come out wrong in what I'm going to say now, but in a way it's an advantage. It is an advantage. Yeah, it is. Because it's so hard for when you like, if you have that skill, if you know how to observe and look out for things, man, then you navigate, you know, throughout the sea of life and storms are going to come and you're going to go through them. Like, you know, not victimizing yourself, just like doing what has to be done and being honest with yourself, I think is one of the things that to me is a big lesson here because there is no other way, right? There is no other way unless you're going to be yourself. And I think sometimes, you know, I I love this conversation because I think it's disconstructing all the stereotypes and paradigms of like being a PhD student and an entrepreneur and this and that and showing the real deal. And that's one of the things that I really wanted with this conversation is just like, let's be honest about this. Exactly. Yeah, I agree with you that I think that it's really important as a, you know, for myself as a speaker, um, and I have given some presentations at different different places, um, really over the last um, 10 years, but more so now, you know, they're like, even at, at my um, internship, they're like, can you do this presentation? And I'm like, oh, I'm an intern. Am I supposed to be doing that? But I think that being able to present in a, an academic way, but also in a human way is really, really important. And I didn't take a course on that or, or anything. It's just the nature of how I was raised, the advantages and disadvantages of the community where I was raised. That keeps me humble. That keeps me human. And so everything else that, you know, I'm blessed, you know, to be able to learn and, you know, remember things and all that stuff. So, but one thing that I will never forget that has nothing to do with academia is where I came from. And that humbles me. So for example, when you were talking about the TEDx talks and sharing stories and things like that, super important, we have to do that. And that's a great place to tell stories. But do you know what I thought of immediately as you were speaking about that? What? I thought we need to get small storybooks that have seven pages, get the Gates Foundation or someone else to pay for those books to go into the favelas. They're not sitting around watching TEDx. They don't have TV. If they have it, half the time the electricity doesn't even work. So I immediately go down to the level, to the lowest level of humanity that doesn't have access to certain things um, because they're the ones that, that, you know, they need the stories too. And it's a natural instinct for me. It is natural for me to take something like that, a TEDx talk, and immediately, it's like immediately bring that down to the level of the poorest of the poor to be able to get that story as well. Um, and honestly, that is, that's my life. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to make sure that a two-year-old in the favelas who knows nothing or a two-year-old in the slums of Nairobi or in India or in Pakistan or in Syria, that a two-year-old gets that storybook in their hand that says, you are worthy, you can do something. And here's a story about a little girl or boy just like you, dressed like you, 
colored like you. The scene has to be a scene in a country like where you live. And this little person can do it. And so can you. That's that's what I'm here for. Absolutely. And as you were saying that, um, it reminded me of one of the, you know, to me, he is one of the my references, you know, as a person, as an academic, as a professional, um, but also as a social educator around um, prejudice in Brazil. His name is Giovanni. He actually he's in the sea. I, I was just like, oh, my God, I wish I could call him and he could come in right now because his statics was about um, stories. Oh, and wow. yes, and it was beautiful, just beautiful. And even on his, so, like, just the person he is, he's yeah. also always constantly advocating for stories and just sharing them in such a just human way, you know, just yeah. honorable, humble and relatable, but, you know, just very relatable human way. So um, I'm going to introduce it to a few. So I'm just going to do that after this. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I hear you like I think and that's why it's so important to have people with different perspectives, right? Because you're talking about this book and maybe there is something else like there is something else that we can design, you know, in between different languages, different like I don't know, but like and, and this is where like I start getting excited, right, about designing things because this is where the opportunities are and where the like, you know, the passion just comes in and sparks. So I totally hear you. And I'm so grateful that you're here for this mission and this purpose, because I am sure that the entire world is so blessed to have you and to be able to not just benefit from it, but just get to hear your story. And, and interact with you and, and get that from a firsthand standing point. So I thank you so much for sharing all of this. And, you know, um, I just wanted to know if you have any less messages for our listeners or notes. You know, I think, you know, I, the last messages it would be to um, get with friends who think like you um, and, and talk because in our discussion today, um, you, Helen, may have facilitated a program for USAID or for World Bank when I get in there to produce a line of books along with your friend who you just mentioned um, as uh, something to empower um, people who are impoverished. And who knows, we may actually see that come to fruition. And it came from people getting together, from you facilitating and bringing people together um, to have these discussions and it's 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 just super important and so i thank you for that and i thank you for this opportunity i hope so i'm so excited now i want to make this happen so badly okay yeah, um, awesome. yeah let's make the connections and and see how we can move things forward for sure i'm here for that 100 and thank you so much for you know sharing so honestly so truthfully and letting us get to know a little bit more about you i hope you know we can schedule another interview for something else at some point i'm hoping for that and i hope there's more to come from you in the world and we'll keep an eye out for sure is there any like um contact information you want people to know from you like instagram or website or something yeah i'm really bad with a lot of my own um social media i have to be honest with you but i am on instagram um 
it's under YOD International. That is the name of my nonprofit. So most of what I do is under YOD International. Even on Facebook, it's YOD International. So um, take a look, um, you know, take a look at the website. You'll see some more of what I do. But um, what I love most is, is, is having these talks, you know, having these talks with people. It, it's really, really important to come together. And um, so I say to you, uh, what did you teach me? I think you taught me Muito obrigada. Yes, that's it. Okay. Muito obrigada. <laughs> I'm remembering. Yeah, no, your Portuguese is like flying, honestly. It's amazing. <laughs> like, I, I'm surprised. <laughs> yes, exactly. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah.